this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we have been in for the last couple of months uh, on Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And we've called uh, this series uh, A Cross-Shaped Life because it's our conviction that, uh, that this book uh, is Paul's letter writing to the church, this new church, to show them that the cross of Jesus Christ is not only meant to be their hope for after their death, their hope for eternal life, but it's also meant to shape their life in this world. It's meant to shape the way that we go about our relationships, the way that we love our neighbors, the ways that we uh, handle our resources and possessions. And in the chapter uh, that we look at this morning, how it's the key for learning how we handle and steward our own bodies that God has given us. And so uh, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. The author John Steinbeck, uh, in his book East of Eden, writes this. What freedom men and women could have were they not constantly tricked and trapped and enslaved and tortured by their sexuality? The only drawback in that freedom is that without it, one would not be a human. One would be a monster. You know, Steinbeck here, uh, I think, agrees with Scripture, something you won't often say. But this is the biblical uh, confession about our sexuality, that because we are made in the image of God, that it is core to who we are as people. It's a, it's, it's a key part of what it means that we're made for relationship, that we're made for intimacy, that we're made for mutual giving and receiving and love. And yet, in this fallen world, isn't it true that it's also the source of some of our deepest frustrations, some of our most pressing temptations, some of our most secret shame, some of our most lingering struggles? This is true. Uh, all we have to do uh, to know it is look at the news, right? The, the news seems daily is dominated uh, by stories of sexuality uh, gone wrong and the brokenness that can ensure from it. It's true if you look just honestly for a few minutes at your own life and look at your own deepest struggles, look at your own deepest sources of guilt and shame. Uh, for so many of us, those stories trace back uh, in some way touching on our sexuality. To talk about sex uh, is inherently awkward, uh, a fact of which I am keenly aware in this moment. 
To talk about sex is to talk at the same time about our deepest joys, our most tender moments, and our deepest shame. And so, uh, pressed with that awkwardness, so often we avoid it. Uh, We avoid talking about it. We don't talk about it in church. Uh, We don't talk about it with our spouses or in our relationships. At times, uh, we fail even to talk about it with our children, to equip them, to talk with them about both the incredible beauty and the deep brokenness uh, that can accompany our sexuality. Our awkwardness uh, betrays the fact, and our avoidance betrays the fact that at the end of the day, we just don't trust the grace of God to cover this part of our lives. We don't trust His grace to satisfy our deepest longings. We don't trust His grace to cover over our deepest shame, and so we avoid it. And so in talking about our sexuality this morning, what we're going to seek to do, every one of us in the room, a sexually broken, sexually struggling person, no less the one who's preaching today, uh, we're going to seek to apply the grace of God uh, to this crucial and important area of our lives. We talked about uh, or hinted at how difficult and awkward it can be to have what's come to be known euphemistically only as the talk with our children (laughs) Uh, But what I imagine the Apostle Paul here doing with his children in the faith uh, is having the talk. (laughs) It's him in the midst of their sexual confusion and brokenness. If you remember, if you were here with us just a couple of weeks ago, Paul directed head-on some of the dysfunction and struggle in this church, particularly around this man who had begun a relationship with his former mother-in-law. So Paul is saying, sit down, children in the faith, and let's have the talk. Let's talk about the bodies that God has placed you in, the bodies that God has given you. Let's talk about the struggles that are present within you. Let's talk about the dignity to which he's called you. And so, as we seek to make sense of our own lives, our own relationships, even looking for ways to talk about these things within our own families, we could do worse uh, than to follow the Apostle Paul uh, in his advice in this. So, uh, as we tiptoe into this awkward ground, let's pray. Lord Jesus, to talk about sexuality is, at times it feels, to stumble all over ourselves on holy ground. Lord, we know that this is core to how you've made us, and yet for so many of us, it's a place where we've known disappointment and struggle. It's a place, uh, maybe above all of the other places in our lives, where it's hard to trust your grace, to believe your gospel, to really and truly believe that we are new in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would keep the accusing voice of the enemy away from us, that you would help us to talk about these things without a hint of shame or condemnation, but, Lord, that you would teach us to order our lives according to your word, that you would teach us to steward these bodies and these souls that you've given us for our neighbor's good, for our good, and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the way that Paul starts uh, this conversation is by showing us that you are who you are by the grace of God. That God's grace is what defines you. And that by grace, you are different than you are by nature. That by grace, you are made new. If you look at verse 11, after this list of sins describing the unrighteous life of the world outside of Christ, a list that includes uh, 
greed, drunkenness, reviling, swindling, all of these things, and also three key descriptors of sexual sin. Uh, it talks about adultery. It talks about the uh, practice of homosexuality. It talks about all, all, all elements of sexual immorality. And so on the heels of that list, in verse 11, Paul writes this. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We are not going to talk about uh, the list of sins and the details of that if you're interested. Last week's sermon is on the internet um, forever. So um, (laughs) uh, if, if you're interested, you can look at that. But what I want to draw our attention to here and now is that Paul begins this conversation with these saints and sinners, sexually broken and struggling people, by saying, such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, and you've been justified. You've known what it is uh, to struggle and to suffer. You've known what it is to be tempted and to give in to temptation. But by God's grace, you are no longer defined by your desires, by your struggles, by your stumblings, by your shame, by your guilt, that you are new, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. You know, this is true of all areas of our life in Christ, but I don't think there's a more difficult area to really live as though this is true than in the area of our sexuality. For most of us, and we will not do this right now, but if I were to ask you to close your eyes and give you 10 seconds I bet in your mind you could go back to the stories of your deepest shame and regret. And because of the way that our sexuality works, how deeply wired in it is to our physiology and to our hearts, you could be back there in an instant, remembering the sounds, remembering the voices, remembering what it was like. It's so core to our identity that it's very, very hard for us to not be defined by our regrets and by our shame in this area. It's probably the hardest area to really and truly believe that by our inclusion in Christ, we truly are new creations. You know, at a previous uh, church uh, where I served, I met with a man over a long period of time. And he met, he wanted to meet with me as his pastor and counselor uh, to talk about the way that he felt helpless in his own life over sexual compulsion. His life had come to a place where he was essentially driven by compulsive sexual behaviors that he felt powerless to stop. And what's unique about this man wasn't the fact that he was powerless against sexual compulsion. Uh, what was unique about the fact was the fact that he told me on our first meeting. Right? Usually when somebody meets with a pastor, you go several meetings talking about other stuff um, before you get to what you were really hoping to talk about uh, the whole time. But he just came in and laid it out. And he said, Pastor, this is my story. This is what you need to know about me. These are the areas that I've struggled in my life. And as we talked about these things, the second week he chose to bring in as an exercise a timeline of his life story, particularly as it pertains to his sexuality. And this was not a life story written on a you know, note card. This was a legal sheet uh, laid out. And it began uh, when he was 12 years old and walked in on his father. Uh, in the midst of an adulterous relationship. Some of his core ideas about sexuality, about marriage, about relationships were formed there. It went on into his middle school days where he struggled 
to connect uh, with other uh, peers in his class. He was constantly ashamed. He was small for his age. He was bullied and beat up. And over time, he learned that sexuality could serve as a type of drug, a type of quick fix to that feeling of inadequacy and shame. That as he went from relationship to relationship, at times anonymous relationship to anonymous relationship, several uh, in a given week, he'd say that in those moments he felt some temporary relief from his sense of inadequacy and shame. For a moment he felt loved, he felt validated, he felt desired. But he knew at the depths of his heart, he knew that he was killing himself. He knew that he was not only treating his body in a way that it wasn't intended to be treated, but he was treating his soul in these attachments in ways that it was not meant to be treated. And so he came to me, he was at the end of his rope. And over the course of our time talking with each other, of laying out these stories, it became clear to him, God's grace made it clear to him that he needed life in Christ. And so there in in my office one day, with tears in both of our eyes, he surrendered his life to Jesus. He confessed that he was looking for in these temporary relationships uh, a longing to be met that they could never meet. That sense of, of adequacy and love and security that he chased in every other place, he came to realize could only be found in Christ. He came to be realized that no, no amount of therapy, no amount of talking about his past could truly bring mercy and grace and forgiveness that he needed in the midst of it. And so there, in that moment, he, he surrendered it to Christ. In that beautiful moment, it was my privilege to get to tell him the words of 1 Corinthians. Such were some of you, but you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified in Christ. Brother, you are new. Now that newness sometimes doesn't look like newness, does it? Right? I remember uh, the experience in my early life when I began my life with Christ. And I was convinced that I had left behind sin, that I had left behind old habits, old patterns, that now that I had Jesus, uh, life was going to be new, it was going to be different, temptations were going to be a thing of the past. And I think that lasted literally 48 hours before you realize that the same temptations, the same habits, the same patterns are there. And so what does it look like to learn to walk as new creatures in newness of life? You know, if you think about uh, my friend, it was hard to chart the story of his past. How much harder is it to chart the story of his future? To lay out in in a way what God asks of us, how he teaches us to learn to love others and to love ourselves with our bodies, sexual beings though we are. And so the grace of God makes us new. And then the grace of God shows us that what we do with our bodies matters. What we do with our bodies matters. You know, Christianity, Christian spirituality, uh, is never a spirituality divorced from our bodies, right? It's not as though we are, uh, we are saved so that our souls or our spirits can transcend our bodily life and go live life with God. No, Christianity is a bodily faith that has implications for the ways that we honor our bodies and the ways that we treat our neighbor's bodies, Paul addresses this with the Corinthians, starting in verse 12. And this is admittedly a tricky section of 1 Corinthians. So we're just going to walk through it kind of sentence by sentence. Because what you have to do if you're going to understand what Paul is, the argument Paul's laying out here for the Corinthians, 
is you have to understand that he's using some of their favorite slogans, some of the ways that they talked about their spiritual life. And so he'll alternate between quoting the Corinthians and then offering his own rebuttal, his own kind of correction to the way that they are talking about and living with these things. And so he starts out quoting the Corinthians in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Right? It was their view that because of the grace of God, that they're saying all things are now lawful. Right? Because, I'm, because of forgiveness, because of grace and new life, we're no longer bound by the old moral code that used to hold uh, people according to its standards. And Paul assumes their perspective for just a moment. So he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. What he's saying is essentially, even if that were true, even if everything was lawful for you, not everything is helpful. And the word helpful there has a particular focus on the community impacts of their behavior. So he's essentially saying, even if everything were lawful for you as an individual, what's right for you as an individual isn't the only thing that matters in your life. You know, I think we're going to see over and over again, as we look at the Corinthian worldview, how very, very similar it is to our own worldview uh, and to the pressures that we face. And so essentially their perspective was, you know what? Sexuality is a private matter. Sex is primarily a private matter between two consenting adults. And what they want is the only arbiter of right and wrong. Does that sound familiar uh, to anyone? Right? That, that's so core to the way that we think about sexuality so often uh, here in the 21st century. And yet Paul says, even if all things were lawful, not everything is beneficial or helpful. Not everything is good for the community. Not everything is good for your neighbors. And this, this, is, um, this is such a foreign way for us to think about our sexuality. We are so used to thinking that what goes on in the bedroom only affects the two people involved. And yet there are reasons why. Uh, for millennia, societies have viewed sexuality and marriage as a community event. Right? This is the reason why you invite people to your wedding. Right? There's something about the joining together of man and woman that says, I want witnesses. This affects the community, so we're going to invite the community in to celebrate it with us, to stand with us, to uphold us in our vows to one another. Sexuality has cultural consequences. Again, if you don't think this is true, watch the news for literally five minutes. And look at the ways that we talk about sexuality the ways that we hurt one another uh, in sexuality. Look at the ways that our culture, you know, essentially our, our Western culture has spent about the last 50 years uh, reducing sexual morality to one thing. There's, about, there's only about one thing that remains sacred in sexuality, right? Is that sex is to be between two consenting adults. And if we've learned anything over the last, I don't know, year, it seems, is that once you reduce it that much, you start arguing over what is consent and what's an adult, right? You end up sexuality reduced to consent and agency is not a sufficient guide to show us how to order our bodily lives together. We fall right back where humanity always has of the powerful taking advantage of those without power, of, of people seeking to satisfy their desires however and whenever they can. We need more of a guide we need more of, of a direction than simply the consent between two individuals. Because though everything is lawful, not all, not all things are helpful.
He goes on to say, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Again, he grants their premise. Even if everything were lawful, which it's not, Paul does, does say they still are bound uh, by, a, by, by code of ethics. He says, even if everything were lawful, I will not be dominated by anything. Here he enters into their own philosophical way of thinking. The Stoics, uh, which is the, the prevalent philosophy of the time, their goal of life was not to be dominated by any compulsive activities or emotions. And so Paul was saying to them, look, even if everything were lawful, haven't you learned that when you give in to desire over and over and over again, that what you thought would lead to freedom ends up leading to slavery? It ends up leading to, to a domineering power over you. So essentially what the Corinthians were saying, again, see if this seems familiar, is that sexuality is primarily about freedom of individual expression. Right? It's about pursuing your individual fulfillment as you see fit. And Paul says, no, no, no. Don't you see that what you chase thinking it's going to lead to freedom leads to compulsion, it leads to addiction, it leads to slavery. So even if all things were lawful, you should not want to be dominated by anything. He goes on, he quotes them again, verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Here their argument is that sex is just a, it's an appetite like any other. Right? We're physical creatures, we have physical appetites, and, and if God gave us an appetite, then surely he wants us to satisfy it. And so they say the, the food is made for the, or the stomach is made for food. In the end, both are going to pass away. So why not enjoy both to their fullest? Fill your stomach on all the food that you want. So on their analogy, sex is, is another appetite, just like hunger. And so who, are, who is anyone to judge anyone else or to be judged on how they satisfy their physical appetites? Right? And again, I think this is the way that we tend to think about sex. It's simply a physical appetite that we have to satisfy. Right? If you need hunger, if, you, if you're hungry so you need to eat or you're going to die, we convince ourselves that, that because we feel sexual urges, they've got to be satisfied or we'll die. And so to that, Paul writes, the, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. So here he makes this turn where he says, your physical appetites, yes, they're real appetites, but they are not divorced from your Christianity. God, uh, what they said, what they were wrong about saying was that the body was made for, that the stomach was made for food and the food for body and, and God was going to destroy them both in time, right? They don't matter. They're going to pass away. They belong to this life. But then in the end, we go on to heaven. But what he's saying is, no, no, the Lord was made for the body and the body for the Lord. Just as God raised the body of the Lord in the resurrection, he's going to raise your body to new life. And so what you do with your body matters, and it matters deeply. You know, everywhere, both in the Corinthian world and in our own, uh, the world operates uh, with what could be called a, a type of dualism, right? In their days, it was the beginning of Gnosticism. But dualism is simply the belief that the world, there's, there's the physical world, and then there's the spiritual world, right? There's the sacred world, then there's the secular world, and that those two things are forever separate. 
But the scriptures tell us that God made the heavens and the earth uh, in Genesis 1, and that he made them as a unity, right? That Christ came not to save souls, but to save the world in all of its createdness, to remake it as a new creation. That in his body, he took on in the incarnation a human body, dignifying our bodies in the process. That he was raised into a new body that was not less than physical, but a real body. And so we have to resist any way of looking at the world that splits it uh, in this dualistic way of thinking. That says God is only concerned with the spiritual, with the sacred, with the ethical. And that's divorced from from the, the things we do in our bodies. But we're made one. We're made to be one. Creation, incarnation, and resurrection points us to this fact that we live our Christian lives in our bodies and that what we do uh, with our bodies matters. And so Paul goes on from there. Uh, He talks about the case of prostitution in Corinth. Remember, we we said previously that prostitution was the norm in Corinth. One commentator has said that uh, Corinthian men walked into brothels with all of the ease that you or I would walk into a Starbucks. That it was just a normal part, a normal expectation uh, for male life in the ancient Roman world. uh, That they were free to essentially do and take who they wanted, even in in this area of prostitution. Uh, The code was a little bit different for ladies, um, but men could do what they wanted, essentially. And so here Paul is dealing with the ongoing practice of prostitution in the Corinthian church. And so he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. That's a quote from the early chapters of Genesis. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Martin Luther summarized these verses this way. He said, you cannot go into the brothel and leave Christ outside. And that's true of all of our life in this body. That everywhere we go, because we are joined with Christ, Christ goes. This requires us to believe two things that I don't think we really believe. Uh, One is the, the incredible reality of our union with Christ in the gospel. Right, that's Paul's favorite way of talking about what happens to us in Christ, is that we become one with Christ. That to believe in Christ, to trust him for your life, means that you are one with him. That you become in Christ and Christ in you. And it's one thing to talk about that, and again, I think when we talk about that, we assume that what Paul's talking about is something kind of distant and ephemeral and spiritual. But what he says here is that your bodies are one with Christ. That your union with Christ is so real as to be, uh, to be physical. That you are made physically, spiritually, in every way. You are now in Christ. In such a way that he is in you and your entire life is wrapped up and hidden in him. This is at times uncomfortable for us to talk about. But the early church was not uncomfortable talking about our union with Christ in erotic and romantic terms. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote a multi-volume commentary on the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, talking about the the union between Christ and his church in, in what is honestly uncomfortably erotic language. 
But what they were saying, this is a way that the, the biblical authors were comfortable talking about our union with Christ. Not that it's a sexual union, but that sex is a pointer to, it's a shadow, it's a type of what our union with Christ is in reality. That the closest we come in this life to having a metaphor for what it's like to be in Christ is the union of husband and wife. One body, one heart, one union. And so the biblical authors use that as a metaphor to deploy it to help us think about what it means for us to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us. And it's not a union uh, that we can check at the door when we take our bodies into other places. And so that's the second union that I don't think we really want to believe is true or don't truly believe is true, which is that the sexual union is a deeper union than simply the union of bodies. Right? Paul says, don't you know uh, that when one is joined to a prostitute, and here he uses a biblical theology that's not limited simply to prostitution, but don't you know essentially when you're joined to another that you are joined to them, one flesh, one life. This is the incredible beauty of biblical sexuality. Right? Many times we look uh, at Christian teachings of sex, and we think we assume that, that Christianity has a very low view of sexuality. Right? We think that because uh, the society loves to, to, to talk about sex as our highest end as human beings, and because Christians at times argue for a more limited practice of sexuality, that Christians have a low view of sex. But in reality, Christians have a high, almost mystical and sacramental view of sex, a deep and abiding and beautiful view of sex. Poet laureate Billy Collins, in one of my favorite lines, he grew up, he was, he was from uh, New England, grew up in the church. And this is the, the message that he heard about sexuality from church. Sex is a dirty and shameful thing, so be sure to share it, to save it, to share it with someone you really love. And I think so often that is how we talk about it. But in reality, sex is so beautiful, such a core part of how we're made and who we're made to be. The union uh, forged in sexuality so deep and lasting that to take it outside of the whole life covenant of marriage is, is to risk it. It's to risk your own heart. It's to risk it being what it could be. The biblical image of sex is always bodily union in the context of whole life union. And it's viewed as less than what it was made for. Anytime you say, I'll take your body, I'll be joined with you physically, but I will refuse to be joined with you in every other way. Physically, bodily, spiritually, emotionally. That to take it out of that context uh, takes it out of the context for which it was made. Jonathan Edwards loved to use the image of like fire, that when placed in the fireplace keeps us warm, warms entire, entire families by its safety and warmth, but outside of a fireplace threatens to destroy entire cities. Sex, like a fire, is meant to be kept within the context for which God's ordained it uh, to be placed. And so what we do with our bodies matters. And then finally, tell, Paul tells us here uh, that your body does not belong simply to you that your body does not simply belong to you. Look at what he says, starting in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or you do, not, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is not your own. It belongs to the Lord. So Paul lays out two things that we do in light of that. We have to run from something and run towards something. Right? He says flee sexual immorality. That's what we have to run from. Something has to die. When you hear flee sexual immorality, the biblical image that Paul's conjuring here is the image of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Remember when she, when she sought to take him and to make, her, make him her lover? And he fled so quickly that he even left his coat there with her. So he ran out naked. That's what it means to flee. It also calls to mind the image of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Right? This, is, this is the exhortation to run away from temptation and sexual immorality. You know, what does this look like? What does that mean? You know, in my own life, let's, I'll talk to, you, talk to you about what it means in my own life. In my own life, it means knowing my weakness enough to not trust myself. It means knowing my patterns enough to not give myself the benefit of the doubt that when temptation comes, I'm going to be strong enough to stand against it. This means that in my life, uh, when Haley leaves town, which she does from time to time, uh, this means that I, I need other people in my life that know that she's gone and that, are will, that I'm able to call them and ask them if I can come over for a while. And you like to think, maybe you thought that you're, you know, 37-year-old pastor, father of two. Uh, I'd like, heck, I'd like to think that I didn't need that kind of thing. I'd like to think that I had outgrown the weakness of needing the shameful moment of telling people, guys, I can't. When I am lonely and I'm anxious and I'm bored, that is not a good recipe for my soul. And so I've known what it is to have to have my friends, some elders of this church, call and invite me over for dinner to help me flee from temptation. Not because I'm strong, but because I'm weak. And so to flee temptation means that you honestly look at yourself. And you say, you know what, if I was strong enough to resist temptation, I would probably be better at it by now. I probably would have established a better resume by this point in my life. But because I'm weak, I need other people. And I need, I need, I need a system in my life to flee from temptation. So we run from something. And then we run to something. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Imagine how beautiful this is. Every single one of you in your bodies, whether, I know that we all have different feelings about our bodies at, a different, at any given moment. Usually of them, most of them pretty self-judgmental. We're too fat, we're too skinny, we're too old, we're too young. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Every person in this room, every person that you meet is a temple of God's presence. You are a theophany. Theophany is one of those overly complicated seminary words 
Uh, theophany simply means the, the appearance of God. In the Old Testament, when God would physically appear to his people in a burning bush, let's say, or in a mysterious, shadowy angel figure, God reveals himself in a theophany. And every Christian is a theophany. You are the presence of God, the spirit of God, in a physical form, in the body. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, what you do with your body matters. How you honor God in that temple matters. Paul calls us glorify God in your body. How do we glorify God in our bodies? I think it starts uh, by cultivating habits of confession in your life. You know, we said at the outset, sexuality is awkward to talk about. Let's strive to be a church where it's a little less awkward to talk about it. Let's strive to have homes where it's a little bit less awkward to talk about it. Homes where it's less awkward for your teenager to talk about it because mom and dad are willing to talk about it. And you're willing to confess. When you talk with your children, you talk uh, not as one who, who talks from a place of moral high ground, but from a place of brokenness and frailty. Two sinners before Jesus acknowledging your need of his grace. We hope as a church, you know, we confess our sins every single week when we gather here. It is my prayer that that is not the only time in your week that you confess sins, but that you learn here how to confess your sins, even your sexual sins, among your friends, in your growth group, within your families, that you learn to talk about it. We have to learn to care for our bodies. You know, you got this body when you were born. You have it until you die. Then you're without it for a little while, but guess what? Then Jesus raises it from the grave and gives it back to you. So take care of your body. Just as much as care of your soul is a call on the Christian, care of your body is a call. Pay attention to what you put into it. Pay attention to what you do with it. Pay attention to how you care for it. It's got to last you until you die. And it will last you that long and no longer. So take care of it. Care for the bodies of others. You know, two out of the ten commandments, two out of the ten have to do with how we care for our neighbor's bodies. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery. Unless you look at those two and go, all right, check and check. Didn't murder anybody today, and I didn't commit adultery today. Jesus expands those commandments to say that if you do anything to undermine your neighbor's dignity, anything to threaten their life, undermine their flourishing, strike at who they are, you have murdered them. If you look upon your neighbor with lust as something to consume for your own satisfaction, you are guilty of adultery. So to care for our neighbor's bodies means that we seek to protect their life, that we seek to protect the lives of the vulnerable and the weak from conception to old age. The most vulnerable in our neighborhoods, we seek to protect them, to protect them in their bodies. And it means that we look on our neighbors not as goods to be consumed for our own satisfaction and lust, but that we protect them, that we nourish them, that we, that we, that we seek their good. And so let's, in Christ, care for our bodies in one another's bodies. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the beautiful, terrifying wonder that is our sexuality and the bodies that you've given us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to steward our bodies for your glory. That we would use our bodies uh, in the covenants that you've given us to you and to our spouses. That you would help us to flee from temptation and to glorify you, not just in our hearts and minds, but in the very physical nature of our bodies. Lord, help us uh, in a world where we typically use one another and abuse one another. Instead, to protect one another, to shelter one another, to give our lives uh, for the good of our neighbor's bodies and our own. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.